0: I think people are just hanging on the fact that Marcus Freeman's 0-3 as a head coach. So people will, you know, hang on that fact and and all these other things, but I think it's a bigger loss for Texas A&M personally, just because A&M does not have a baked in excuse. Hello and welcome to Always College Football. Today is Monday, September 12th. We hope you're enjoying the show wherever you're getting the show, whether it's on the ESPN YouTube channel or if you're here with us via the podcast, whether that's on Spotify or Apple Podcast, we really appreciate you. Please like, rate, and subscribe. Helps us out. Helps the show out. And tell your friends, too. Word of mouth is big, and we appreciate all the, many, <laughs> all, the all the people kind of passing along the information about the podcast. It's been real helpful, and we've really, really appreciated that. I'm Greg McCoy with me as always is Mark Kubiak. Uh, what a game plan we have in store for you today. We're, of course, going to talk about the first shoe to drop in the coaching carousel news out of Lincoln, Nebraska. We'll discuss that. And we're going to have an entire reaction and breakdown of several games from some of the biggest matchups in the week two slate. There were some incredible, incredible performances. We're going to highlight those without question. And, of course, Monday staple, play some low-hanging fruit as well. Plus, take a peek at some of the best things we saw over the weekend. So without much further ado, let's talk about it. All right, in case you're just now finding out, Scott Frost has been dismissed at Nebraska. Here's Trev Alberts, the athletic director, on why it was the right time to make the decision. At this point, I just felt like, um, as I mentioned earlier, we we owed it to the players you know, uh, to give them – Uh, a different voice, perhaps slightly different vision, give them some confidence and opportunity. We've got nine games. We've got seniors on this team that have invested a lot for a long time. And uh, I know how disruptive these changes are. You're not just affecting the player's life, you're affecting all the coaches and their family, and I understand that. Um, But we needed to do something. We needed to inject something into this team to give them the confidence and and hopefully help them compete. All right, as far as what it means to the team right now, Mickey Joseph, he's the associate head coach. He'll take over as the interim here in the near term. Look, this was inevitable. Uh, I kind of understand why you do it right now, but I also think that if you're going to do it three games in, why wouldn't you just just do it at the end of last season? I mean, just to me, it reeks of desperation in a lot of ways, but at the same time, that's kind of where Nebraska's at. And I understand, too. I mean, how many different ways can you lose heartbreakers? Nebraska has lost 10 straight one-score games to close out Scott Frost's tenure. And, of course, you allow an eight-yard touchdown with 36 seconds left to fall to one and two on the season. And that was snapped a streak of 214 straight victories for Nebraska when scoring 35 or more points at home. It also pushed... Scott Frost to five and twenty-two in one score games. Now, here's what I'm trying to figure out. I'm sure that there's some type of understanding. Because they fired him on September 11th, obviously. But now they're required to pay him fifteen million dollars. We know that if it had waited until October first, that buyout would be cut by fifty percent. So what does it mean? I you know, you basically cost yourself an additional seven and a half million by getting rid of them now as opposed to letting them twist in the wind for a few more weeks than doing it after October 1st. But either way, what I want to see here moving forward, man, for Nebraska, uh, I don't know who you get. I'm not sure what you do. But I think we've just realized that this is a very difficult place to win right now. And it, and I wish it wasn't. Uh, I'm as much a fan of Nebraska as you guys are. I grew up in the 90s just like y'all. I'd love to see Nebraska back. I think it'd be great for college football. But right now, as far as proximity is concerned, when you look at the players that are in your state or the players that surround your state, the talent's just not there to field a nationally competitive roster. You got to go elsewhere, and it's really, really difficult nowadays to be able to do that. I also think, too, playing in the Big Ten, in a lot of ways, has hurt Nebraska. They used to lean heavily into that Texas pipeline where a lot of kids from the state of Texas would go to Nebraska knowing that they would stay in the Big 12. So I don't blame them for doing what they had to do. Look at the strength of the Big 10 versus the strength of the Big 12. Ultimately, financially, it's a much better destination to be aligned with the Big 10. But either way, it's hard to it's hard to really deny the fact that Nebraska, since joining the Big 10, has been a shell of itself. Uh, I think there's a lot of reason to believe that it would be in their best interest to maybe go back to running the triple option. I think it'd make sense to go in that direction. But I also think, too, I think this is still a place in the NIL era where you can win. It's Just you got to make sure that you have the right guy in charge because it clearly was not the case with Scott Frost over the last four plus years. Lions, Tigers, and Tailgates. Oh, my. The college football season is always a great time of year. Besides the jerseys, the face paint, and the foam fingers, there's the food. And nothing gets you more fired up for game day than Eckrich Smoked Sausage. They're naturally hardwood smoked and have the perfect blend of spices. From Buffalo sausage dip, sausage, chili, mac, and cheese, Eckridge smoked sausage is a quick way to bring flavor to all your tailgate meals. Visit Eckridge.com for easy, one-of-a-kind sausage recipes. Eckridge, you do you. Football season is here, and nothing beats seeing your favorite team live. Not only does Vivid Seats have great NFL ticket prices, they're also the official ticketing partner of ESPN. And with Vivid Seats Rewards, when you buy 10 tickets, you get the 11th free. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats, life happens live. Receive a reward credit equal to the average price of 10 tickets purchased, excluding taxes, fees, and processing costs. See vividseats.com rewards for terms and conditions. All right, let's talk about it. What an incredible weekend of games. Bunch of upsets. We're going to dive into it, but we have to start in Austin, Texas, where there wasn't an upset, but it was brewing there for quite some time. Alabama goes on the road and survives what was maybe the sloppiest performance of the Nick Saban era, so it felt like, at least from a penalty standpoint, it certainly was. Alabama, (laughs) I can't believe that I'm actually reading this stat. 15 penalties for 100 yards, the most accepted penalties Under Nick Saban, and the most accepted penalties since 2002 against Middle Tennessee, and there were probably three or four others. Whether it be pass interference, maybe a hold, maybe a intentional grounding. However, you saw things happening in the end zone. (laughs) There could have been several more. So the fact that there were 15 through three quarters was eye opening enough, and the fact that it could have been more is even more glaring. So a lot of things to clean up. But here's the big takeaway. For both programs. For Alabama, you survived. All right? You didn't have your best stuff. I don't even think you were the best team on the field that day. People are going to say, best. Well, Alabama wins that game most of the time. Yeah, I'm talking about that day. They were not the best team that day. But they made enough plays to be able to preserve the victory after what was an impressive performance for the Texas Longhorns. Number two for Alabama. You have to figure out... How to make sure you don't find yourself in a situation where your corners are constantly in one-on-one. I thought Steve Sarkeesian did a masterful job of handling some of the looks that Alabama was giving them in the pass rush. I didn't think Willie Anderson had his best stuff. I didn't think the pass rush in general for Alabama had their best stuff. But in large part due to the misdirection and all the different things that Steve Sarkeesian had up his sleeve to make life difficult. For that pass rush, they just never could get in much of a rhythm. I loved how they pulled guards and had backs, and it was hard play action. They were double-teaming Will Anderson. It was just really well done, I think, on the outside. And Xavier Worthy, by the way, is phenomenal. More on him in just a minute. Number three for Alabama. The biggest positive in the game was your red zone performance defensively. Three trips inside the 10 if you're Texas, they come away with six points. That was significant. Significant. For just how the whole game played out, Alabama constantly, you know, the kind of backed up against the wall needing to have a play and Texas could not cash it in for six. That was the difference of the game really more than anything else. So those were three major takeaways for Alabama. I think offensively, we already know who Bryce Young is. Like, so I don't need to say, oh, it's a takeaway. He's clutch. Yeah, we know that. All right, so not not breaking any news there as it pertains to the Heisman Trophy winner. He was terrific in the fourth quarter after what was a bit of a slow start, uncharacteristically off out of rhythm there for the first part of the first few quarters. But the receivers really didn't help him much. I thought Alabama looked a step slow at times, too. So lots to clean up for the Crimson Tide. Let's get to Texas quickly. Hate that Quinn Ewers got hurt and hate that he's going to be out for the better part of the next month and a half. That's really unfortunate. Hate how he fell. I hate that it happened on a play that was broken from the start. That play never had a chance. And you'd love for him to just cut it loose a little bit earlier as opposed to running around buying just a little bit of time and allowing a defender to grasp. So felt awful for him. But if there's one thing I learned about Texas this past weekend, we knew that they were going to be smart offensively and we knew they had pretty decent weapons. But I was very impressed with how they played defensively. I thought they did a great job along the front. I thought Coburn was phenomenal. Played great there in the middle of that defense. I thought the second-level defenders, and even the third-level defenders in the secondary, all those guys did a great job. They were draped in coverage. There were not really a whole lot of opportunities for Alabama to get separation there in the first three quarters of the football game. So really credit to Texas's defense. I thought they came to play and it was a really, really rock-solid performance. And then three, if you're gauging where Texas is through two weeks of year number two, think about where they were last year. They played against Arkansas, went on the road to Arkansas in Fayetteville, second game of the Steve Sarkeesian era. They got punched in the face, and it was ugly from start to finish. Fast forward one year. Yes, you had the luxuries of your own home field, But still, you were so much more capable of playing in a physical environment like that. I was awfully proud of the performance that Texas put on tape, but they got to be kicking themselves because they left a lot of points on the field. But either way, tremendous game. Congrats to Alabama. Fantastic finish and a resilient and gutsy performance that you're going to need to grow from from this point forward. All right, Texas, of course, even in a losing effort, playing extremely well. Let's transition now to the Big 12 as a whole. Oklahoma rolled again. No surprise there. They appear to be very much legitimate. Oklahoma State looked a little bit better on defense this week than they did a week ago. Still, 2-0 is 2-0. Kansas is 2-0. An interesting side note about Kansas's victory at West Virginia. They're the first team since 1998 to win a game in overtime by 13 points. Of course, they had the pick six to put the game on ice, but either way, saw that note, thought it was interesting. Kansas Lance Leipold there in year number two. He's got things going a little bit there for the Kansas Jayhawks. They have an excellent quarterback. The offense is explosive, and they gave West Virginia all sorts of fits in the second half of that football game. How about Kansas State's performance? They were dominant, absolutely dominant from start to finish. Against the Missouri Tigers. And then, not to be outdone, the Texas Tech Red Raiders. I feel like we talked about a few of these teams in the preseason. If you want to go back and see, look at the dangerous teams. I'm telling you, I feel like we did pretty good with our Big 12 prognostications because this collection of teams in the Big 12 is extremely dangerous. All these teams really playing well. TCU, I think, has a chance to make some noise too as the season goes along. Baylor, of course, even in a losing effort, I don't think any of us came away from that game thinking that Baylor was any less than we already thought they were. Maybe not a top 10 team at this point, but still a tough performance on the road against a good BYU team. But let's start with Texas Tech and let's finish with Texas Tech as far as the Big 12 is concerned. Look, I, I think it's an impressive thing to be able to win in overtime. And to do so against Houston, I thought was really, really impressive. They had an eight-game losing streak against ranked teams that now has come to an end. They were 2 and 28, the Texas Tech Red Raiders 2 and 28 in their last 30 games against ranked teams. Well, things are starting to turn just a little bit for the Texas Tech Red Raiders. And I want to just talk about the last minute and 15 seconds of that football game. Third and long With about 75 seconds left or so, Donovan Smith throws that interception, gets returned all the way to the 20. Great job by the defense forcing the field goal. 37 seconds left, down three. Donovan Smith calmly guides his team right down the field and set up the 47-yard field goal at the gun to send it to overtime. And then, of course, how about the fourth and 20 in the first overtime period where he finds Jerron Bradley on the scramble drill. He cuts up field keeps the drive alive. They punch it in and eventually win it in the second overtime with the Donovan Smith touchdown run. I think that was about as insane final minute and a half of the football game all the way through overtime as we've seen in a while. We've seen some wild ones, y'all. The last couple weeks, we've seen some wild ones, but kudos to Texas Tech, man. Congrats on getting it done at home against a ranked team for the first time in a while. Tremendous performance, and it obviously looks like the McGuire era is off to an outstanding start when you look with what the Red Raiders have done up to this point. All right, moving on, if Texas Tech and Houston wasn't the game of the day, that game of the day might have been there in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the Tennessee Volunteers went on the road. And man, what a game this thing was. That's for sure. Tennessee, let's start with them. They were the victors. They get the first crack at it. After kind of a rough start, rough is probably a little bit of a stretch. I mean, just an uncharacteristically, a little bit uneven and inaccurate start for Hendon Hooker. He really settled in. Felt like the legs of his were kind of what kind of got his day started a little bit. You saw Pitt early on kind of squatting on some of those underneath throws. They had really tight coverage on slants and it just didn't seem like Tennessee had a lot of opportunities to get things going and get into a rhythm early. But, it felt like there was enough there to kind of get things going. And as soon as his legs came alive, the rest of the offense began to open up. A couple other takeaways that I had. Brew McCoy is ad- as advertised. I, look, you've heard this guy. He's like a mythical figure in college football because he started it. Where did he start? SC and then transferred to Texas, then back to SC and is back in the portals. Now he's at Tennessee. It's like he's kind of all over the place, but everyone always talked about and raved about his God-given potential and natural strength. Well, it was on display this past weekend. On two different occasions, I thought his strength was off the charts good. He got nudged out of bounds, pushed out of bounds, came back in, reestablished himself, and caught that ball in the back left corner of the end zone. That was play number one. Play number two, he caught one underneath – on you know that that curl route to the left-hand side ran over a defender kept his legs churning and inevitably got to the point in which he picked up the first down. Brew McCoy is going to be legit, okay? He'd be an alpha number 1 wide receiver on a lot of different teams. However, at Tennessee, it's no secret who's number 1 in that offense. It is Cedric Tillman. This dude is off the charts. So big, so strong, so gifted. There were times, I mean, he was just on the verge of taking that game over on about six or seven different occasions. It felt like, I mean, he was just an unstoppable force and you could just see how big he was. And I got, by the way, I got a lot of respect for Pitt's defensive backs. I mean, That's a pretty solid group, and it's kind of a thankless task. you got to play one-on-one against this guy, and he's this long and this strong and this difficult to contain, especially in these 50-50 ball opportunities, man. Those receivers are insane. I mean, so, so good. As far as the Tennessee defense is concerned, I kind of had this one takeaway. We had kind of documented that, hey, you know, I'm not 100% sure that pass rush is there. You know, I'm not sure that if they just put four guys hands on the ground, can they get up field, rush the passer and drop guys without having to bring pressure based on that game plan? It's almost like Tennessee's defensive staff said, yeah, you know, we we just can't get home. So we're going to have to manufacture pressure by bringing blitz packages and man, did they bring them over and over and over again? Edge pressure, edge pressure, internal edge. I mean, it was almost constant throughout the course of the game. It got to the point where I was like, man, Keaton, you got to adjust this protection. Like They have had five or six different opportunities in which a Tennessee defender is coming off your blind side unblocked because there's no one to block him because of where your protection's set. And he has a full head of steam and he's about to drill you in the back. They did a great job of, I think, making Keaton Slovis just the tiniest bit uncomfortable and forcing the ball out of his hands quicker than he probably wanted to because of the edge pressures that they were bringing. So I thought they had a really good feel for the protections and they were constantly able to overload the protections throughout the course of the game. So that was a really nice positive. I'd also say another positive too, that interception by Flowers in the back of the end was a kind of jump started the day. That was a bit of a turning point. That was awesome (laughs) right there. Dragged that foot in the back of the end zone, turned the momentum, and kind of got Tennessee going. So a great job by Tennessee going on the road, getting a win at Pitt. For Pitt, it was not all lost. It was not all negative. I thought Nick Patty really battled, man. Shoot. I thought as he got rolled up there and that right knee kind of got underneath him, I was like, oh man, they're going to be down to the third quarterback. This is like the bowl game all over again. He's just not... I feel terrible for this kid because you listen to Pat Narduzzi. He's going on and on about how good Nick Patty is and how you just need to see this kid. And he, as soon as he gets out there, he gets banged up, man. He hung in there. I don't know. No, if he was hundred percent, I don't think he was. He certainly wasn't moving like he was at a hundred percent, but he gave him a chance. And that's all you can really ask for when your backup quarterbacks in the game, give the team a chance. Also on that fourth and goal, they're in the back of the to send it to overtime. That was a beautiful throw. Really nicely done and tight coverage and a good catch, too, there in the back of the end zone as well. As far as the offense is concerned as a whole, they got to figure out a few different things. All right. They got to clean up some of their protections. I referenced it a second ago about how Tennessee was constantly able to overload pressure and get free hitters on Pitt's quarterback. If you continue to give up free hitters, your quarterback's going to get hurt. It's as simple as that, and that's what happened to Keaton Slovis, and I hate this for this young man. As soon as I saw him go down and as soon as I saw that shoulder drive into the field, I got concerned, similar to the way I felt about Quinn Ewers. As soon as you saw him go down, you could just tell immediately something's not right. So I have not seen his prognosis as of right now, but fingers crossed it won't be anything too long-term for Keaton Slovis because he was playing really good football throughout the first six, seven quarters of this season. Before the injury happened, uh, as far as Pitt is concerned, man, they had of course that blocked punt and then held Tennessee to a field goal. You know, there was uh, Tennessee forced a field goal. Excuse me, that was kind of the changing point. It felt like it felt like that was kind of the game. You know, it really felt like in some ways that was kind of the game. So it felt like also after the muff punts, like man, Pitt's a team of destiny. They're going to get out of this thing alive and they just couldn't do it. So credit to Tennessee. You went into a hostile environment, played against a good Pitt football team. I think Pitt can still do special things this year. I think Tennessee is on the verge of becoming pretty dang good, but both teams coming out of that performance can clean a few things up. Look forward because there's still plenty to play for even if you're on the losing end like the Pitt Panthers were. All right, moving on now, the two of the biggest upsets the college football world's seen in quite some time. Notre Dame- And Texas A&M. Let's start with the Fighting Irish. The offense is a problem. I don't know how how else to to kind of explain it at this point. The offense is a significant problem. Let's start with Tyler Buckner, and I know he's injured. I hope he's going to be all right. Know it's a shoulder injury. Not sure exactly how it's all going to unfold. Kind of like we just talked about with Keaton Slovis. Kind of like we just talked about earlier with Quinn Ewers. It just looked similar. So, uh, hoping and have not seen the prognosis right now, but. Don't know the timetable for his return, but did not look good. But let's talk about the performance before we talk about everything else surrounding the fighting Irish. Number one, if you're Buckner, you cannot make the same mistake twice. I can live with interceptions. They happen. They happen. But I can't live with it over and over and over again. He has thrown into squat corners on multiple different occasions that's led to interceptions. The first interception... Against You look back at the Virginia Tech tape from a year ago, squat corner, interception. You look at this year's game against Marshall, first interception, squat corner, interception. Don't worry, it happens to everybody. I've thrown that pick. I remember it vividly. It was against Haltom. I was a senior in high school, and I learned from that point forward, I will never throw a hitch into a squat corner, ever. I know why? Because I threw it against Haltom. He returned to the house, and we ended up winning like sixty-three to seven. And the defensive coordinator from my high school team did not talk to me for four months because I ruined the shutout for the team. I don't blame him. You throw a hitch into a squat corner—that's bad ball. Here's the problem: Buckner is a young player. Anthony Richardson did it later in the day, in the game, and later in the day against Kentucky. Squat corner end up getting picked, taken to the house. It happens. If you're a young player, it happens. you got to clap it off, learn from it, and don't let it happen again. Well, later in the game, you got a hitch out to the left, not squat cover two corner, but a corner that is playing very, very firm, a corner that's draped, and you try to force a locked hitch into really tight coverage, and the ball's in the air for a really long time. That gives the defender plenty of opportunities to make a play on the ball. Those are interceptions that cannot be repeated, and he did it. Again, for the second time. I also think at this point, man, he's got to be able to hit the big ones. The end of the half is one that will just sit with you forever. You guys know the one I'm talking about. You got Lindsey. He's behind the defense. There's a bust in coverage. He's on a post. There's seven seconds left in the half. Lindsey can do a moonwalk into the end zone if he just catches the ball. Instead... He tries to throw it on a line, tries to throw it perfect. If you throw it on a line, what does that do? It forces you to be perfect because the receiver cannot adjust to the football. If you put air underneath it, guess what? The receiver can adjust. But when you put it on a line, on a frozen rope, the receiver might not be able to reach out for it because he can't react in time. And there it is. Interception, long foul ball. That was a game-changing play, I thought, for Notre Dame. Marshall gave him a cheap one. Notre Dame could not take advantage of it. And it was really, really painful to watch. More troubling, though, than the interceptions by your young quarterback and the misses by your young quarterback. I think Notre Dame's wide receiver core lacks explosiveness at this point. I think Mayer's amazing, but I just don't see them running away from anybody right now. That's troubling. The offensive line, major issues. Way too many pressures. Not doing a very good job on the right side of the offensive line in particular defensively, might be my biggest concern. Your head coach, Marcus Freeman, defensive coordinator, understands how to get that side playing at a high level. Can't happen. Can't get gashed by Marshall, by, you know, Kalen Laybourne, Florida State transfer. The guy can play. There's no denying that he can play. Guy went for 163. (laughs) That's the most by a player against Notre Dame since 2016. And we all know what Notre Dame's record was in 2016. I don't think they're going to have that again. This is a proud program. They have good leadership. They're going to be fine. But man, that was a jaw dropper to see that type of performance. But how about Marshall? Just quickly, this is about Notre Dame, but we also need to tip our cap and acknowledge what the Thundering Herd did. They almost never got behind the sticks. They stayed on schedule throughout the course of the game. So incredibly happy for Coach Huff and the plan that they put together because they put their players in a great spot to be successful. Getting downhill in the run game, pushing Notre Dame off the spot, making guys miss in the open field. It was a smart game plan that didn't put too much on their players' shoulders, and the players executed as if they had nothing to lose. It was awesome. Really, really fun to watch. So credit to the Thundering Herd. Also credit to the Appalachian State Mountaineers. They completely dominated against Texas A&M. They outgained the Aggies 305 to 186. The time of possession, they had it for 41 and a half minutes to the Aggies 18 and a half. That 41 and a half time of possession advantage That's the third highest in a game for App States that they moved to the FPS. (laughs) So just goes to show you how dominant this thing was in regards to time of possession and snaps for the Mountaineers. And it was really the difference of the game. Haynes King, they got to figure a few things out with him. I mean, just off the mark, fumbles, guy runs by, by, strips it, one hand on the ball, strip, fumble. I mean just too many mistakes, man. Like I know he's a young player, way too many mistakes. He turns the ball over way too often. And if you're turning the ball over, man, just can't happen. I mean, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what the advantage is as far as your talent's concerned. You turn the ball over, that's the ultimate neutralizer. So throughout the day, there was a lot of positives and a lot of negatives. Nothing sums up the day better than Devon A. Chain. Because Devon A. Chain had two of the best plays of the day for the Yankees. Of course, the initial touchdown run there early, the way he cut back, the way he burst upfield, the way he split the safeties, just a thing of beauty. You saw the explosiveness there on the field. But you also, at the same time, saw what he did in the kickoff return. Made a guy miss, take it right down the right sideline to the house. All right, Incredible two plays that will live in the highlight reels. All the time. Like, we're going to look at those plays and say, man, Devon A. Chain did his thing today. Look a little bit closer. Because there were three or four different occasions in which Devon A. Chain was atrocious in pass protection. He was atrocious in blocking. There was a draw play in particular. You can go back and find it. I don't know exactly where it was. I don't recall exactly where it was. But he completely whiffed on the block as Haynes King is trying to run on a quarterback draw. And there's plenty of room. If Devon A. Chain makes the block, Haynes King might go. Number two, another pass protection. Completely got destroyed. Gave up a sack around the right-hand side. Got blown up completely. Guy came right around, sacked Haynes King. Number three, about five minutes and 12 seconds left in the game. need you to go back and take a look at this. A zone read. The guys completely collapse. Haynes King is trying to pull the ball out of Devon A. Chain's stomach. Trying to pull it. He's got a wrapper out in front. There's no defender on the left-hand side. Haynes King scores. If Devon A-Chain lets him pull it, A-Chain instead doubles over, doesn't let Haynes King pull it. Next thing you know, it results in an average gain, if not no gain, maybe even lost yardage, whereas it could have been a touchdown had A-Chain allowed the ride to take place in the zone read concept. So he sums up the day perfectly. Some good things, but a lot of bad things. And the bad things outweighed the good things in some ways and resulted in the Aggies coming up short. The defense, I can't dis- I can't give the Aggies defense too hard of a time. They were on the field for way too long. And in the end, they got the ball. App State does. App State gets one on the edge, on the perimeter, on the left-hand side. The Aggies, you could tell, tongues are dragging, man. They were gassed. That defense was completely gassed. So credit to App State, man. The way they were able to control time of possession, the way they were able to shrink the game, shorten the game. Chase Bryce made just enough plays to keep them in the ball game. I'm so happy for App State. That was a gutsy performance to go on the road after what you experienced last week. Heartbreak at the hands of the North Carolina Tar Heels. Just goes to show you, man, App State does not care. <laughs> Anytime... Anywhere, anyone, any place. Gotta love that when it comes to App State. And as a result of their victory, they will be hosting game day this weekend against Troy. How great will that be? What a scene that will be in Boone, North Carolina. To put one big bow on the day of upsets involving both AM and and Notre Dame, let's talk quickly about the Sun Belt. Three upsets on Saturday, including two against AP Top 10 teams. The Sun Belt is the first FBS conference since the split of FBS versus FCS back in 1978 to have three teams win a game as underdogs of 15 or more points on the same day. Of course, App State defeated number six, Texas A&M. They were an 18-point dog. Marshall defeated Notre Dame. They were number eight. They were a 20 and a half point dog. And then Georgia Southern, of course, went to Nebraska, put the nail in the coffin of Scott Frost as a 23 and a half point dog to get the outright win for Clay Helton. So what a day for the Sunbelt Conference. MacRoy, let me ask you, who is the the loss worse for? Notre Dame and Marcus Freeman, who's a first-year head coach, or Jimbo Fisher and Texas AM. I mean, from where I'm sitting. AM gave Jimbo Fisher $100 million to win games, and this is a top 10 SEC West team that loses at home. Like it, it seems like it's a no brainer to me, but I see more people telling me that it's a bigger loss for Marcus Freeman. I think people are just hanging on the fact that Marcus Freeman's 0 3 as a head coach. So people will, you know, hang on that fact and, and all these other things. But I think it's a bigger loss for Texas AM personally. I just because AM does not have a baked in excuse. Notre Dame actually does. They could say, well, hey, man, like we we grinded last week against Ohio State. We played our tails off. There was a bit of a hangover today. Remember, they had it last year. They survived a close one against Florida State, only to play Toledo the following week, and that was a really close game. So this has happened before. It just never bit them quite like this. So I would say that the Texas A&M performance was worse, even though I think App State is better than Marshall – App State had their heart ripped out last week against UNC. So I I think that the excuses to me might make more sense coming out of Notre Dame's camp. Not that they're going to make any. They're going to take total ownership of what transpired on the field, and they should. But I can understand why they would lay an egg. I cannot understand for the life of me why Texas A.M. would come out flat against a team that knowingly... Knowingly, has been giant killers not just in recent years but ever over the course of the last 15 or 16 years. All right, a segment that we always liked kind of dive into some of the, I guess, overreactions, if you will, in college football. So let's get into it. We've had plenty of them the first couple of weeks of the season. So, Mark, let's kick it off. Low hanging fruit. Ah, uh, yes, low hanging fruit. All right, first one, low hanging fruit or not, Caleb Williams is the best quarterback in college football. Well, I mean, Anthony Richardson was the best quarterback last week. Um, Caleb Williams is the best quarterback this week. Who will we anoint as the best quarterback next week? Maybe Jake Hayner at Fresno State. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, first of all, there's no superlative list. It's a two-game sample size. And up to this point, if I'm going to be completely honest, I'm not exactly coming away from that game last night saying, man, Stanford, hey, keep an eye on that defense. no. I'll say this, though, is I think their mix of play calling and how, hey, short pass, short pass, screen, short pass, short pass, and then boom, over the top, Addison on a go ball down the left sideline. Boom, big post, Addison over the top, perfectly hits him in stride. Addison breaks a tackle, scores. I love the play calling that I got last night from Lincoln Riley you know, we always know he's a, he's a great play caller. There's no, no secret there. I'm not, you know, not, you know it's nothing earth shattering, but just the way they mix things up, they get their quarterbacks into such a rhythm, get them feeling so confident, and then boom, you unleash one, and you're feeling great when the ball comes out of your hands, you drop it right in the bucket. So uh, I'll say this, in order to answer your question, I'm going to say it's low-hanging fruit right now because there is no best quarterback in college football right now, but it's ever-changing, if you will. But it would be difficult to make an argument against him being the best quarterback. You might be able to prop up other guys, but you can't tear down what Caleb Williams has done here in the first two weeks of the season. All right, fair enough. Moving on. After watching Alabama struggle, Georgia is clearly the best team in the SEC. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Uh, Let me take that one step further. You said best team in the SEC. Georgia is the best team in the country, okay? And this is only, I only feel more validated in this thought. And like I said, purely overreactionary, but I'm only more validated knowing that Notre Dame is clearly human, gave Ohio State a great game. So I'm not saying that it necessarily puts a dent in the armor, There for the Ohio State Buckeyes, but the resume takes a slight hit. And Alabama, of course, looked incredibly human on the road against a Texas team that I'm not sure any of us are real sure about at this point. So uh, I would say that based on all the performances, and we don't have that many of them, (laughs) but if you take the top three, the big three, if you will, you have two games each for each of those three teams. The best performance of all the performances was Georgia against Oregon. That's the best performance. It was the most dominant. It was clinical. It was surgical. That's the best performance. So at this point, it is not low-hanging fruit. That is truth. Georgia is the best team in America. Okay. And that's and right highly- now. That's right now, too. Subject to change a week from now if they lay an egg against South Carolina. So right now, Georgia has the best claim at number one. All right. Saturday proved that expanding the playoffs will not make the regular season less important. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Ooh, it's right down the middle because if Alabama, for instance, loses on Saturday, you know, let's just say they lose, uh, and say Rychard misses the field goal uh, there at the end of regulation. Let's say they lose. Now Alabama can still lose once, maybe twice more, and still get in the college football playoff? I mean, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it's that. So you can make the case, yes, you know, here's a perfect example, a perfect reason why, you know, we, we need to expand, you know. Because you see all these Sunbelt teams knocking off great opponents, say, hey man, that could be a 12-5 matchup in the playoff. That could be a 16-1 matchup in the playoffs. And look, anyone can beat anyone on any given Saturday. So I happen to think that there are some external factors that go into the performances of some of those heavy favorites. And partly why I think some, you know, partly why they probably didn't play their best stuff probably reading the tea leaves a little bit, and I'm not sure you'll be reading the tea leaves as much in a playoff setting, but I think Saturday and the performances of Saturday was a good, I would say it's a helpful nugget to have when considering, when those that are voicing their opinion in favor of college football playoff expansion, because it almost goes as far as to say, well, this justifies having automatic qualifiers. This justifies having all group of five Conference champions having a representative in the college football playoff. I mean, I I think that there's a lot that can be learned from this past weekend is that in the era of the transfer portal, you don't know what you got until you're deep in the season. And anyone can beat anyone because the holes on some teams' rosters are not as drastic as they once were. So the portal, I think, has made things a little bit more manageable for some teams in a rebuild, but it also makes it a little bit more manageable or a little bit more difficult to manage because you might not have all the guys pulling in the same direction. So, going to be very interesting, I think, to see where that narrative goes based on Saturday's performances as far as the playoff expansion crowd is concerned.
1: Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets pizza, better because it has to be.
0: All right, you know here on Always College Football, our goal is to celebrate college football, so we're not going to end on a negative note. No way, we're going to end positively. So let's go straight to Lexington, Kentucky, or I guess Gainesville, Florida, if you will. Mark Stoops has officially passed Bear Bryant for the most wins in Kentucky history. He now has 61 wins. To see what his program's become, man, just amazing. We called that game on Saturday night, so tough, so physical, and I've said this on multiple different shows over the last several years. Years! I said there is no program that has taken on the personality of their head coach more than Kentucky. I really believe that. If you look at just how hard they play, how physical they are, how much they have a chip on their shoulder, the blue-collar approach. They will fight you in the alley any day of the week. You know Mark Stoops would do that too. So congrats, coach. Amazing, amazing success. Cheers to 61 more uh, there in Lexington. It certainly feels like you're heading in that direction. Let's go to the Twitter machine for a hot second. And check out Johnny Football. At Jmanzel2, I've got two years of eligibility left right? Wow. Tossing a little shade. Is that shade? I'm trying to figure out, like, is he like saying, is he kind of dogging the Aggies? I'm not sure. But either way, I mean, honestly, with COVID eligibility and NIL, Johnny probably could come back, play a couple more. Why not? (laughs) Put a waiver in. Let's see if the NCAA allows it. Bet you they won't, (laughs) but worth a try. Either way, it'd be great to see Johnny Football back on the field for the Aggies. That's for sure. Those were fun days when he was leading the charge there back in the early 2010s. And then how about this? Did you see this? Sluka sets up. Here he goes to the far corner of the end zone. It's caught. It's caught. Touchdown, Holy Cross. Sluka to Coker. A dagger to give the Crusaders their second straight win over an FBS opponent. Jalen Coker says, I'm a man among boys. That ball is mine, and this game is over. All right, the play of the day here on Always College Football is courtesy of our friend Matthew Sluka, who heaved it up for Holy Cross. For the game winner, unbelievable throw, unbelievable play there on the Hail Mary. Matthew, what's going on, man?
1: What's going on? How are you guys doing?
0: All right. You know, so now, let me get this straight. Holy Cross has now won two straight games against FBS opponents, correct? Yes, sir. That's right. All right. Talk us about last night's game against Buffalo. You're sitting there. Game's tied. You're heaving it to the end zone. What's going through your head?
1: Um, I mean, yeah, it was great. Uh, it's been done before. And so we had really high hopes of doing it again. Um, you know, that's what Jalen does. He's a jump ball king. Um, so we took our chances. Coach said, uh, I think we gotta go for a Hail Mary here. I said, absolutely. Let's throw it up to 80. So you,
0: so tell me this, all right. Cause you were on about the 50, right? Give or take. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you got to buy a little time. I mean, let's say all your guys run four or five forties. You got to buy about four and a half seconds to get to the end zone. Right? So you drift to your left. Usually on a hail mary, right handed guy, you're going all the way back to the right. You drift to your left. Said, "Hey, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it rain out here. I'm gonna drop it in the bucket, <laughs> dude, I've never seen anyone drift left and throw hail mary back right, dude. Are you just showing off your arm?"
1: <laughs> no, it was uh normally we do roll out right. That's what we uh, usually practice. But they did a good job on their defense. Um, they lined up four guys to the right hand side. Um, and I kind of looked to the sideline, looked at my old lineman, and I was like, "Well, I guess I'll be buying time left. You guys just slide right." take care of them, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Um, so I just tried to you know, get a minute, let Jalen and Ayer, and Justin, get down the field, um, and then just waited till the last second I could and threw it as far as possible. All right, we, I need you to give a little love
0: to your teammate, Jalen Coker, because I've thrown Hail Marys. Usually they're intercepted. Uh, so uh, he had a 62-yard touchdown earlier in the game. Give me a little love to your guy on the outside, like you called jump ball King.
1: Yeah, um I mean Jay's a beast. You know, him having like a 40, I don't even know, 42, 43 in vertical. Um it's just what he does. We see it in practice all the time. Um we were lucky enough to see it last year against Hart in the playoffs. Um you know, it's been it's been a good time working with him. Uh he's a freak and it's what, you know, it's good. It was just throw it up to him and let him come down with it. There was four guys there. Yeah, I mean the picture is kind of crazy. I don't know if you guys saw it, but you can't even see him. You just see his purple gloves standing out. Um <laughs> and yeah, he was he came down with
0: it. That's amazing. All right. So, what's as you see the ball landing in the scrum? What are you, are you looking? It's probably hard to see who caught it. Are you looking at the official? What, what's your first line of sight as you see the ball land?
1: I mean, I just saw a whole bunch of people go up. I wasn't sure if it, like anyone came down with it at first. I was kind of, you know, a little shocked that I didn't think anybody caught it. And then I saw, uh, actually, I hear Asante jumping up and down, celebrating. And that was kind of, you know, the signal to me that we, uh, you know, we had a touchdown.
0: Uh, Amazing, man. Absolutely amazing. Tell me what the celebration was like in the locker room after the game.
1: Oh, yeah, it was great. Everyone singing and dancing around. Um, You know, we were were hype. It was a good one. Um, You know, definitely good to be an FBS opponent um, two years in a row now. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of guys just celebrating, you know, dancing and singing around all day. You know, on the plane ride home, we were singing, you know, music was going. It was a good time.
0: I love that, man. Congratulations. We look forward to following. Now that we know that you guys are the FBS Giant Killers, we're going to be watching Holy Cross every week, seeing if you guys can continue to knock off other teams. You might be the unofficial team for us now moving forward, seeing how much fun we had watching your guys last night.
1: Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, no, a couple of good games coming up. Um, yeah, let's keep going. we got to keep going, keep rolling. Hopefully going to defeat
0: them. Absolutely, man. We look forward to watching you, Matthew. Thanks again for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you guys.
0: What an awesome show, man. So much fun to just dive into all the amazing results this past weekend. Great games, great outcomes, surprises, games that no one would have ever predicted. And yet, here we are. Every single week, man, college football just takes you in. You just never know what you're going to get. Any single Saturday, anything can happen, man. Just the absolute best. Really appreciate you being with us. Please tell your friends. Like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out. It helps the show out. We appreciate the interactions. Hit us up in our social media, Instagram and Twitter, at AlwaysCFB. You can hit us up in our email, at AlwaysCollegeFootball at gmail.com. We really appreciate the interaction with you. We're tailoring the show to you. So please let us know where we can improve and what you'd like to see from us or drop us a question. Put it in the mailbag. We got a long list of mailbag questions that we're trying to get to. We'll get to them as we move forward throughout the course of this week. For Mark Kubiak, I'm Greg McElroy we appreciate you so much and we hope that you had as great of a weekend as we did this past weekend because it was incredible football sun up to sundown on Friday night and on Saturday for all of us here at always college football thanks for being with us and remember it's always college football hey guys it's Greg McElroy thanks for watching always college football make sure you like rate and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcast.